Redlining, a historical buzzword that many people may have heard, but most often don't fully understand. What exactly is redlining and how has it impacted our community and others over the years? Is redlining still happening today? And what can we do about it? My name is Allie Parrish, and on the next two episodes of Bringing Down the House, DeKalen and I are excited to welcome Lauren Johnson, Director of Communications and Community Outreach at the Polk County Housing Trust Fund, to explore this often forgotten history. We hope you stay tuned and consider getting involved with Iowa Heartland Habitat for Humanity's local mission by checking out giving and volunteering opportunities on our website, webuildhabitat.org, or by following us on social media. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bringing Down the House. I'm Ja'Kayla Madison, along with Executive Director of the Iowa Heartland Habitat for Humanity, Allie Parrish. Hey, everybody. Hey, Ja'Kaylin. How are you? So, you know, people are probably like, why do they sound different? They sound right. weird. Well, we're doing this a little differently. Uh, obviously, our our wonderful guest is uh, on location. She is not here locally. So to be safe, to uh, make sure that we are doing what we need to do to keep ourselves safe and healthy during these crazy times, we're actually doing this via Zoom. Uh, that's the best way for us to do this right now. So it may sound different. It may sound weird, but I can promise you uh, it, it, it's going to be great. My cheesy jokes are still going to be in this whole podcast this entire time. So you don't have to worry about missing that. <laughs> I would be so depressed if having to record via Zoom meant that I had to miss out on your cheesy jokes. But I, it, but I will say that the last time I think I had the cheesiest joke that we've had on record thus far with the smoked turkey. <laughs> the smoked turkey. Wait, I forgot about the smoked turkey. <laughs> or it was, was, it was like smoke? smoking like a turkey or whatever. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. See, that's why I forgot about it, Allie. Because <laughs> it, it was so I bad. Wiped it out. That's the only reason why I forgot about it. Oh, man, we need help. We need help. It's the end of the year. I we hopefully we could start anew in 2021. I just hopefully we could just flip a whole new chapter. Whole not a new whole new chapter. I love Maybe I we, love that my my joke was so bad that you literally had to block it out. <laughs> that's what happens when you have traumatic experiences, Allie. Sometimes you suppress them so deep, uh, you just don't want to ever remember them again. That's that's most traumatic experiences. Most of the jokes uh, that I ever tell would definitely be in that category. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I don't know how our families put up with us. I really don't. I No, it's still a mystery to me. <laughs> no, but they love us. I know that they love us. And one thing that I also love that we do in this podcast is uh, our mission moments here. So... I have a mission moment. Uh, you know, as we all know, I'm on the I'm on the board uh, of directors for Habitat for Humanity. So you know, our job uh, is just to oversee the overall mission. You know, we are Allie's biggest support team, and maybe sometimes the biggest pain in her neck, uh, just depending on the day or the meeting. Uh, but you know, we our, our our overall mission is to is to help push forward Habitat. And I got a little teary eyed in the last. Um, meeting just because to sit there and to look at everything that has been happening uh, with revitalization and 
all the new endeavors and, and we're starting a new committee uh, as well in the organization. And it just, I felt so humbled to be a part of that team. Uh, and I hope that, you know, somehow we can find a way to, to highlight uh, the board. And I'm not just saying this, you know, to be like, oh, we're an amazing board, but the, I, there are so many outstanding people on this board that give their time uh, and they are some of the most intelligent people I've met in this community uh, that everything that they do, their questions, their motivation is all for the betterment of the people of this area and for Habitat. And I just, I sit back sometimes, I'm just in awe that I was ever even considered to be on a board of this nature. I, it, it's such an honor. And I am so happy to go into to next year uh, being a part of this team. That's awesome, Jacqueline. And um, yeah, I, I, I completely echo what you are saying. And I, I am so blessed to be able to work with all of the board members, including yourself. Um, it, it warms my heart so much, like you said, just the good questions and the fact that any one of them I could call uh, at any moment, and I know they would jump up and, and do something to help um, this organization, to help me, um, to help each other, to move this mission forward, and I couldn't agree with you more just how incredible it is to to work with all of you um, every single month and, and beyond and in between. So we are very, very fortunate. The community is fortunate um, with the incredible board that we have. So. Yeah, it, it, it's outstanding, and you know, I, I'm very excited for just everything that we have uh, coming up and everything that it, it, it's going on in the organization. So uh, outstanding, and I mean, and kudos to Ali and the staff as well. Again, they put up with us. I have, you know, I don't know how they do, but they put up with us. So <laughs> good job there, guys. Some are some are some are easier than others. <laughs> she means me. <laughs> I know what she means by that. She means me. Uh, well, well, let's let's dive into because uh, we we have a, a very important topic to talk about today. So let's dive in and let's uh, introduce our guest here. All right, so we are joined today by a wonderful guest here, Allie. Her name is Lauren Johnson. Now I'm going to get this. I want to get this title right here because it's it's a doozy. She is the Director of Communications and Community Outreach for the Polk County Housing Trust Fund. Lauren, how did I do? You, you got yes. it, perfect. All right, good, good. I am royally so, impressed, I am royally impressed. I know, right? It is a long one, it is a long one, but couldn't have done any better. I, I better get a sticker for that, I'm just saying. So now- No, you get, you get a gold star. <laughs> even better. Even, even better. better. <laughs> so, Lauren, kind of give us a, a rundown of what is your job as Director of Communications and Community Outreach? Great question, and thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for our conversation here today. So at the Polk County Housing Trust Fund, we do a whole lot of different things, one of which is funding affordable housing in, of course, Polk County. Um, and we do, we have two other real areas of focus, the second one being research and planning work, and then the third being kind of advocacy work and policy work. And so really it's my job to communicate to the public how we are investing in housing in our community, as well as how we or the research that we do to assess the need that we have in our community as well. And then as it pertains to this project that we've been involved with for the past year and a half or so um, entitled Undesigned the Red Line, it's really getting out the word 
about what redlining is and what it has done to our communities over time in Iowa. Yeah, and I was uh, actually really fortunate to be able to go to uh, an exhibit that you guys had put on in Des Moines um, last year, and that was how I kind of got introduced to the work that you guys have been doing and this um, redlining work and everything and and really was fascinating. So um, thank you for the work that you're doing statewide. Well, thank you for coming. (laughs) So I I think before we get any further here, I, I I think the biggest thing we need to do is to define this term redlining and what does it mean? Uh, Lauren, I think you're obviously you're the best person for that. So, yeah, absolutely. So when we say or when we use the term redlining, of course, when these policies that we're going to be discussing were put into place in the 1930s, they, of course, weren't called redlining. That's a more modern term to reference what we're talking about here. But what we are referencing when we say redlining is a government policy, federal government policy that came out of the Great Depression that, of course, aimed to solve some problems that got us into and were consequences of the Great Depression, which were the problems of in the homeland lending sphere. So as you can imagine, these were problems for the banks and they were a really big problem for families because getting these home loans was not that accessible. And for the home loans that were out there, um, the banks had a lot of underperforming or non-performing loans on their books. And so in response to that and to solve that, the federal government started a program of federally backed home loans by signing the Homeowners Loan Act. So this is in the 1930s. So of course, now getting into what really redlining was, is that the federal government did not want to kind of blindly grant these loans to anybody. But there was no way to really assess the risk of the borrowers for these loans. So rather than assess the risk of the individual borrower, as we do now with credit scores, of course, there was no credit scores in the 1930s and 40s, they decided to assess the risk of borrowers based on the neighborhoods that they already lived in. And as we go into some of the documents that accompanied this this legislation and these programs, we see that that the way that they were classifying these neighborhoods was primarily based on race. So if you lived in an area that had a majority of white residents and that there were restrictions in place so that there was really no risk of the population shifting or the population becoming more diverse, then you were more likely to get one of those loans because you were um, classified as being in an A or a green neighborhood. And so there were four different classifications. There were A, green, B, blue, of course, still good, not as great as those A neighborhoods, C, which was yellow, and then D, which is red. And so that's where the term redlining comes from. And these areas were one, um, primarily where Black residents or people who were the non-white population at the time um, were living. And also in these areas, they were pretty much excluded from getting access to those federally backed home loans. And so as you can imagine, that has had quite a legacy for these neighborhoods and for neighborhoods across the country over time. Yeah, and another thing with that too, when we talk about it in the 1930s, you know, that was part of the whole New Deal with FDR and things like that. 
happening in that same time was the Great Migration. So you had all of these African Americans coming from the South uh, to the North, specifically, you know, places like Waterloo, Iowa. Uh, can you speak to how that played an impact as well, as you have this influx of uh, African American people moving into these cities uh, and their issues in finding a home? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we think about racism in the United States, we often talk about kind of the Jim Crow laws of the South. And oftentimes we don't, in our history classes at least, talk about the, the racially restrictive policies that were going on in our northern and our midwestern states. And of course, we started to see that quite a lot after the Great Migration. And that's when the really midwestern story in particular begins. And so prior to these policies um, that now we refer to as redlining, there were a lot of other things going on in northern and midwestern towns, barring um, African American people from living where they wanted to live. So one of the, I mean, most terrible examples, but one of the, the best ways to describe it um, is this policy of sundown towns. So in rural areas um, across the Midwest and just across the north where people were fleeing to from the south, um, these cities and townships were enacting policies that bluntly stated that if you're a person of color and you're here after sundown, um, then you will likely get lynched or beaten up and things of that sort. So then that started kind of another migration from people you know, fleeing from the South to the North, but then people fleeing from the rural areas to the more urban areas. So that's kind of one of the, the big parts of the Midwestern story in particular, and um, really the beginnings of barring where people could live and really not allowing for housing choice just based on your color. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating, Lauren. And I have to say that after I really started learning more about this and digging into this, um, I, I looked for, I searched the internet for Waterloo's uh, specific redlining maps um, after I had heard that you could actually find those maps still in existence um, just by doing a Google search. And I was shocked at how, A, it was easy to find, um, and B, when I actually saw Waterloo's map, uh, to see what was created in the 1940s, to see what areas were red, what areas were blue, um, and so on, I was floored to overlay, um, you know, if, if, if I'm thinking in an overlay, what it would look like today, what, what those areas look like today, and how you can visibly see the disinvestment still today and the effects of this. Um, it, it was absolutely eye-opening to me to take a look at, at ours and also to see how they, how they designated even within the red and specifically called out, as they called it, you know, colored sections of even the redlined areas um, and that those were the worst of the worst. So even they layered in the red areas, you know, D1, D2, D3, D4, um, even gave those a different rating and hierarchy. And uh, it was just just overwhelmingly shocking to me, to be honest. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing that is so essential about redlining to understand is that, you know, when there are certain neighborhoods that have been disinvested in 
for decades, purposefully, um, purposefully so, of course, that's going to have a lasting impact on that community. And so that's why it's really important for us to start addressing this history to first understand it. And that's what we at the Polk County Housing Trust Fund have been doing for the past year and a half, and just talking to people about this issue, because it's widely um, unheard of by, by the general public. And so first to understand it, and then to move forward and address it um, at, at a community level. So, you know, Waterloo needs to address it just like Des Moines does, just like every, there are six cities, I believe, in the state of Iowa that um, had red line maps created. There were 239 maps created across the United States. And so there are 239 cities that have to confront this history. You know, when you hear that, you know, 239 cities that are dealing with this issue from across the country, uh, that number just, it, it, it's, it's hard to let that soak in. Uh, that, you know, the, there's these restrictions that were placed. And a lot of times I think people think, oh, well, that doesn't happen here. Uh, that, that, that doesn't happen here. No, we were, we were one of the biggest proponents of it. Uh, and that's a lot of the reason why we have the makeup of, you know, places like Waterloo, Iowa now. Uh, it's the biggest reason why is because of these redlining maps. But, you know, I have a question for you, Lauren. Is this an issue still today? Now, are we still seeing, I know that you, you've talked about you know, the generational impact of it, but are we still seeing some signs of redlining happening today? So that's, that's a really good question. And thank you for that question. In, in much different ways, you could argue that we are, right? And it, it all depends on, you know, one aspect of it is how we're deciding to invest in our communities. And if we're purposefully kind of barring certain areas from investment, just because we may, you know, say, hey, they're kind of past the, the point of no return, let's invest in the communities that have a little bit more momentum. Um, that could be considered in some ways to be redlining. But additionally, I think the most or the most prominent example of this is something that actually went um, to court by the Department of Housing and Urban Development a couple of years back. And this is a very modern example. So I kind of like using this, but um, really they took Facebook to court because Facebook in their advertising of new apartments, they were allowing the, the owners of the apartments or the landlords to say, you cannot show this listing to this race. And so because that was such clear discrimination based on race, obviously that went to court and um, was ruled in favor of the Department of Housing and Urban Development because that is a clear, clear violation of the Fair Housing Act. Um, but tools like that that are being created, you know, as we go throughout uh, this, this new technological era um, are things that we have to be really careful of and make sure that we're not barring out um, certain groups just based on the color of their skin. And I'll also say one more part of that and something that we talk a lot about is racial steering um, in the real estate agency. And so obviously um, this isn't some, but something that I think is all that uh, too much of a conscious effort on the part of individual uh, real estate agents. But you know, sometimes if there are 
instances in which people who are looking to buy a home are maybe steered away from a certain neighborhood. Um, it's it's not explicitly stated. It's that that's oh, it's because a lot of this kind of person lives here. But it might be oh, well, there's a lot of crime in this neighborhood. Oh, the schools aren't as good in this neighborhood, and things like that. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up, actually. Um, I've been really disheartened um, to that end to hear anecdotally from multiple people, I would say multiple people in our community um, recently, in recent years, like just, you know, in the last couple of years, more and more stories about people who have moved to this area and when they move to the area, maybe now they're somehow involved, you know, with Habitat's mission or, or just I've met them and interacted with them and have heard story after story about their experience moving into the community. Um, a lot of the folks that I'm referring to are a little bit more affluent, um, have, you know, leadership positions in the community or higher level um, positions in the community. And when they came here, the realtors that they worked with um, told them flat out, well, you don't even want to look in, in Waterloo at all. Waterloo is, is completely off the list. We were, I'm not even going to show you any properties in Waterloo. So not even, you know, a neighborhood in Waterloo, but the entirety of Waterloo as a whole and really steering people to, to move into Cedar Falls, which, you know, is, is on so many levels, um, frustrating and disheartening, but also I think creates, tension between our two communities um, that's unnecessary and really does not need to be there. Um, but, but I feel like this practice is, is unethical and possibly even illegal. And yet it's still happening, very, very much happening today. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And even just thinking back to the Waterloo redlining map. So you kind of think, why, why might that be? And why hasn't there been as much development investment in in Waterloo so that um, that's not the case at all. And even just looking back to that redlining map, a majority of the classifications on that map are yellow and red, right? So there, the, only 11% of the map as a whole was classified as green or the areas that were really good for investment. And um, just looking back at it now, 43% of, of the Waterloo map is seen to be hazardous or in that red or D area, right? And so 43% of the um, city of Waterloo was barred from receiving these federally backed home loans that could have bolstered development in, in those areas. Lauren, this whole conversation, it has me thinking about something. If I, what can you speak to on the quality of living for someone uh, in this, you know, you're talking about zones, you know, at the blue zone, the green, the yellow, the red, what's the quality of living like? And is that something that is uh, sufficient for uh, a person or a family to actually be living in? That's, a, that's another great question. And I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. The first thing is that you may think that since these areas were deemed as hazardous in the 1930s, that maybe the quality of living in those areas weren't that good. And that's where they were deemed that way. Um, from our research, we've actually found oftentimes that wasn't the case. It really was just because of the demographic makeup of the folks living there. Of course, sometimes there are areas that um, had some dilapidated housing, but as far as just kind of 
of the cultural aspect of it goes, um, that often wasn't the case. And so it's really sad because um, by barring investment in those neighborhoods, it has progress to a way in which those areas will decline so that quality of life isn't as good. And that never really had to happen, right? And so without purposeful investment coming back into those areas, you know, um, there, there's no way to ensure that that quality of life will improve either. You've just heard part one of our interview with Lauren Johnson, Director of Communications and Community Outreach at the Polk County Housing Trust Fund. Join us here next time for part two as we continue this discussion.